If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. Genesis chapter 6, and we are going to continue our study together of this this book of Genesis by reading the entire chapter 6 together. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. 
Friends, as we continue to make our way through these historical accounts in the book of Genesis, every week I have the thought that there's almost no need for an opening introduction or story to the message. These are not difficult passages and theological texts that need pictures and and stories to to help us to understand and to to grab our attention. No, the text itself, the, the story itself is enough to grab our attention and to draw us immediately in. Genesis chapter 6 continues with the breathtaking drama after the first days of creation and after the sin of Adam and Eve. We read here that there is increasing corruption on the earth. We read here that the, the sons of God, whoever they are, are taking and sleeping with the daughters of men. We are introduced to these strange characters called the Nephilim, whoever they are, We read here that God feels sorrow. Isn't that an interesting phrase for God? We read here about a man named Noah who is called by God to build a massive boat, the likes of which has never been seen. According to the the cubit measurements listed here in the text, this is a boat that is approximately 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. This boat yields a displacement of water about 43,000 tons. The inside capacity has about 1.4 million cubic feet, and the total deck area would have been 95,000 square feet. How many of our houses combined does that equal? Folks, can you imagine building a boat this size and building it by hand? And can you imagine building it in a place where there had never been floods of water before? Folks, what is this all about? What lessons does this dramatic story of Noah and the flood have to teach us this morning about God, about ourselves, and about what faith in God looks like in our day here today? Well, friends, there's much to learn here. There's much to learn in this text. It is clear as we read through Genesis chapter 6 that the focus of this text is on both the judgment of God against sin and the grace that is given to this man named Noah and his family. And friends, I think that the focus on God's judgment is particularly helpful and important to us this morning. Why do I say that? Well, because even though we have talked a lot about sin in recent weeks, we have, haven't we? We've talked a lot about sin. We have seen how the the pandemic of sin is spreading, and we have seen the, the sad consequences to our sin throughout this world. But still, what we have also seen is that God's grace abounds towards sinners, that he is a patient and forbearing God. He did not, after all, kill Adam and Eve immediately for their sin. In in, in Genesis chapter 4, he judged Cain for his murder, but he also preserved and protected Cain. In chapter 5, we see that the, the wages of sin is indeed death, as person after person is said to have died. But there's something that feels more natural and almost organic about it. So, so in chapter 5, we know the theological truth that death is the consequence of God's punishment against sin. But as it says that this person grew to this many years and then died, and this person lived for this many years and then died, it all feels kind of, of natural. 
somehow these consequences against our sin can feel somewhat, somewhat passive to us. And, and if we're not careful, we can assume that the punishment for our sins is almost just a, a natural outworking and an indirect consequence that God has, has built into this world that he's created, rather than an active and a personal demonstration of his anger and wrath against our sinful rebellion. But friends, what we see in Genesis chapter 6 is far from that passive perspective The judgment of God against sin is not passive. It is very active. It is intentional and it is intense. It is is full of holy wrath and fury. Folks, it is divine judgment that is about to make this entire world into a massive graveyard. And that can feel so uncomfortable to us today, can't it? We do not like the idea of God's judgment. If we believe in it at all today, and so many Christians fail to, if we do, oftentimes we prefer the more passive forms of God's judgment, the kind of judgment that allows us to grow old and die of natural causes like we see in Genesis chapter 5. But that's not what we see here. And so while this is uncomfortable, church, there is truth in this chapter that we must consider together this morning. There's good for our souls as we consider both the sorrow and the anger of God against our sin. Folks, here's the main idea of our message this morning. There is hope for those who see God's sorrow and anger against sin, but respond to the promise of his salvation. That there is hope for those who see God's sorrow and anger against sin, but respond to the promise of of his salvation. And we have three points to look at this morning. Here they are. Point number one, our sin multiplies. Point number two, God's sorrow deepens. And point number three, an ark is built by faith. So those are our three points. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, our sin multiplies. These verses in chapter 6, particularly the first verses, just continue to show how sin is growing in the hearts of man and throughout the world. Look at verse 1 with me. It says that man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Folks, that should immediately recall us all the way back to chapter 1 when God clearly instructed Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. But now in chapter 6, what we see is that though humanity is multiplying like God intended, they are not multiplying in the way that God intended. Look at chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, The Lord saw. So, So he looks out at the world that he's made, but instead of looking at it and declaring that it's good like he did so many times in chapter 1, verse 6 says now that he looks at it and he sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 12 says that God saw that the earth was corrupt. We are being given this this stark contrast from what God saw in chapter 1 when the earth was so good and right and what he now sees in all of its corruption and evil. His design has been grossly distorted. 
Also in chapter 1, humanity was called by God clearly to, to fill the earth with his goodness and to be image bearers of him throughout the world, to fill the world with, with his image. But in chapter 6, verse 11, it says that the earth was filled with violence. Such a contrast. And folks, it's important to notice how, how immoral this sin as well is. The world's filled with violence. There's, there's also some form of gross sexual immorality going on here as well. Look at verse 2. It says that the, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there, there's a lot of debate as to what this text is actually speaking about when it speaks of the, the sons of God. Who, who are these sons of God who are taking the daughters of man as their wives? There's lots of perspectives. There are probably three primary ones that I want to share with you very briefly this morning. First of all, uh, some would think that this reference to the sons of God uh, is just a reference to powerful men throughout the world. So, so this perspective, perspective says that the, the sons of God are just powerful, maybe, maybe kingly men who are taking advantage of the women around them and abusing them, likely raping them. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is that the sons of God are descendants from the godly line of Seth, but who are now, so we learned about the godly line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5, but who are now taking and intermarrying with the descendants, the ungodly descendants of Cain, which we learned about in chapter 4. So there's this, this mingling between the godly and the secular. That's the second perspective on what is happening here. Now, the third option might, might sound the strangest to some of us this morning, but it's actually the one that I believe to be true. Many theologians believe that the sons of God in this text is actually a reference to, to fallen angelic beings. So the term sons of God we've seen before is a term that is often used throughout Scripture to speak of angelic beings, both, both good and bad. And so it would seem that these sons of God are fallen angelic beings who followed the Satan in his rebellion against God and who are now trying to, to further attack and further distort God's plan. It, it could be that these, these fallen angels are actually trying to, to intermarry with the human women in order to distort and change God's design of humanity. That, that they would like to cause man to no longer be just made in God's image, like it says in Genesis chapter 1, but to be made in their image as well as they have offspring. And that's likely where we get the idea of the Nephilim in this passage. The Nephilim, who are described as mighty men, the offspring of both, both angels and, and people together. Very large, very powerful. But listen, friends, regardless of where you land on who these sons of God are, the point of these verses is to show how bad the world has gotten. There is rampant sexual immorality. There is violence filling every corner of the globe. And there is corruption filling the world. And just in case we miss how bad it is, the text wonderfully, helpfully summarizes the situation. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. N Notice the emphatic words in that verse. 
Every intention of the thoughts of man were, were only evil, and they were only evil continually. That's emphatic. Folks, this is a dire picture. But it is an accurate picture of who we are in our sin. Once again, as we study through the book of Genesis, there's, there's something about this that is both sobering and sad, but also incredibly helpful. Folks, this explains where, where the sinful tendencies of our hearts come from. It reminds us this morning that we're not alone in our battle against sin and the evil in our hearts. Listen, friend, your heart is not the only one that is so inclined towards evil as it is. You know, just this week, I, I saw that the crew ministry on campus, UD's crew campus ministry and, and the students that we love over there, they were asking and answering spiritual questions online. And, and one of the questions was, what is human nature? And Grace, one of the students over there, did a great job of, of answering that the human nature is depraved. It is sinful, that we are, are naturally sinful and desperately in need of a Savior, and there's no way to escape it apart from Christ. Folks, this is who we are. This is all of us. Even Noah in this story, who we will see later, is also marked by sin. Noah's heart is evil. Later on in Genesis, Abraham's heart is evil. And then Joseph's heart is evil. And later on, King David's heart is evil. And then the prophet, and then the disciples, and then the apostle Paul. And then Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 3, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Our lives are so messed up and our relationships are so broken and so difficult and our minds are so filled with anger and lust and hate and jealousy and bitterness and division. Why? Because we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all depraved and deserving of God's just judgment against our sins. Our sin, apart from the grace of God, multiplies. Friends, don't you see this in your life? I see it in my life. Don't, don't you see the sin of pride lead you to demand respect from friends and family? And when you don't get the respect that you think that you deserve, don't you see your sin multiply towards anger? And when you get angry, don't you then feel the consequences and the, the brokenness of relationship? And when that multiplies and you feel that deeply, don't then you then fall into to self-pity and, and feel bad for yourself? And then don't you feel to, to make yourself feel better by, by looking at porn or by eating too much or by gossiping about those that hurt you? And does it ever help? No, it never helps. It just snowballs more and more. Our sin multiplies. And as it does, we just find our lives becoming increasingly broken. Even as we see here in Genesis chapter 6, our lives are just filled up with this corruption and sin. And friends, that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, God's sorrow deepens. Did you notice how it speaks of God in these verses. Verse 6 says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Verse 7 repeats when he says, for I am sorry that I have made them. Folks, I don't know about you, but, but these verses seem strange to me when I read them. 
What do, what do you think of when you think of someone who is sorry for what they've done? What, what picture comes to mind? Is it, is it a girl crying into her pillow, pillow because she's so upset? Do you picture a criminal who is pleading for mercy because of the crimes that he's committed? Do you, do you picture a, a desperate husband trying to earn his wife's favor back after offending her and promising her that, that he'll never do it again? What, what do you picture in this? Isn't this interesting? What are we supposed to make of these phrases which seem to portray God as being sorry for what he's done? Is God changing his mind here? Are these phrases suggesting that God believes that he has truly made a mistake in creating man and woman? Did did humanity's sinfulness somehow undermine God's sovereign control of all things and leave God himself no choice but to change his plans and to go to plan B? The question is, can God make a mistake? In this moment, is God really just saying, well, I guess my plan didn't work out how I thought that it would. I probably shouldn't have tried it in that way in that first place. My bad. Hopefully I can do better next time. Is that what the text is saying about God? Friends, that's not what the point of these verses is at all. What the, point is doing, what the, what the text is doing here is using human language to try to get at and to try to describe the emotions of God in some way. This is often called anthropomorphism, when we, when we use human characteristics and emotions to speak of God. But listen, we have to connect the words that are used here to the fuller revelation of Scripture to fully understand what is being said about God in this text. We know that God cannot ultimately change his mind or that his sovereignty cannot in some way be undermined by humans' sinfulness. Why? Well, because Scripture makes it explicitly clear that God's purposes are set before the beginning of time and that that while he does somehow involve humanity's free will into that sovereign plan, still his ultimate plan cannot be changed. He is fully in control. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15 says, And also the glory of Israel, which is speaking of God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so it is very, very clear that God's sorrow is not like our sorrow. His regret is not like our regret. Folks, I don't know about you, but I feel regret over the poor decisions that I make all the time. I regret eating that extra piece of cake. I regret those dumb words that come out of my mouth. I, I regret not serving the people, people around me the way that I should. I, I regret having once been a New England Patriots fan. I have repented. Mike, you need to repent as well. <laughs> our sorrow and our regret are over real mistakes and, and real failures in life. But church, that's not the way that it is with God. Now these words, sorrow and regret, help us to understand a little bit of what God feels, but but we have to set in the context of the whole counsel of Scripture. This word, sorrow, or, or sorry, as we see it in the text, does speak of deep sadness, but listen, it also could be used to speak of God repenting of having made man. Now, that is not a repenting like we repent of sin. But by definition, to repent means to change course or to change direction. And so it seems 
that the sinfulness of humanity had grown to such a point that God finally decided that the way that he was going to relate to humanity needed to change. And so there's a shift. In his divine wisdom, God God sees the the growing severity of corruption, and and he decides to change the way that he relates to the human race. First of all, he He's not going to allow them to live as long on the earth, right? We see that in verse 3 when he says that he will shorten the years that man can live on the earth, thereby limiting the amount of evil that they can do. But then in verse 7, it also speaks of making the decision to actively and intentionally and forcefully bring judgment against them. But it was not that God did not previously feel anger about humanity's sinfulness and then was suddenly shocked by it and suddenly needed to to change his plans altogether. Now, do you know what this is like? It's like a parent or a friend who, who knows that someone that they love has to go through hard circumstances in order to grow. It's like a dad or a mom who has been very, very patient with their rebellious son or daughter. And so their son or their daughter has been abusing drugs or or taking advantage of their family or wreaking havoc on all of their relationships. But there often comes this, this moment, this point when that dad or that mom needs to turn. They need to shift gears. Not because their ultimate heart of love for their child has changed, but because it's time to approach things differently. They need to stop supporting that son or the daughter. They need to allow them to feel more of the consequences for their sins. And this this is sorrowful to them, but it's not a repudiation or a turning of what they once felt or how they once acted. It's just a turning and a changing of reproach. Folks, in the same way, God is sorry that he created the human race But that's not to say that he has made a mistake or that the depths of our sinfulness has surprised or shocked him. No, like a dad who knows that his son needs to go through the consequences of his decision in order to grow, so God now turns and deals with humanity differently than he had up until this point. And folks, it's not just that. It's also the the culmination of God's forbearance and the culmination of his patience towards us in our sin. Look at the word grieve in verse 6. It's so important. It says, it grieved him to his heart. Oh, what a powerful statement and phrase about God. It grieved him to his heart. That word speaks of, of bitter indignation. The same word, therefore, for grieved is is used in Genesis chapter 34 when the sons of Jacob, it says, feel indignant and very angry when their sister had been raped by another man. It's the same word that is used to describe King David mourning loudly over the death of his son in battle. The the word here for grief speaks of, of anger. The word speaks of being indignant about a wrong that had been done. And so, God not only shifts the way that he relates to humanity in this moment, what we see here is that this shift, this change is justified. It is deserved. Sins have been committed. Gross immorality has been practiced. Violence, which which is so far from the heart of God, is filling the earth. And God is now indignant. God is righteously angry. And God now turns 
against humanity in this grief. He turns away from them in his, in his grief in the same way that he did towards Israel in Isaiah chapter 63 when it says that because of their rebellion, they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Church, God is a very patient God. He is forbidden, but he will not let his character and his goodness be fought against and dishonored and resisted forever. Now, in Exodus chapter 34, God himself describes himself in this way, and it's so beautiful. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's beautiful. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is a God who is merciful and gracious. Church, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God of forgiveness. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means allow his his grief, his indignation over our rebellion to go unexpressed. He will by no means let the injustices in this world and the injustices against his holiness go unpunished. No, God's sorrow deepens and God's sorrow demands a response. And we're going to see next week in Genesis chapter 7 the intensity of God's righteous anger towards our sins. But friends, what does this mean for us today? What significance does this have for us this morning? How should this affect us? Well, it should remind us that that our sinful actions as people make a holy God very indignant. Church, you, you cannot live however you want to live and assume that God is just going to be okay with it forever. It means that God feels a a holy wrath and a holy anger against your sin because it's an offense to him and because it is what does evil in your life. He loves you and he wants the very best for you and so he becomes indignant towards whatever does harm in your life, even your own sin. And we must remember this means that God will not always remain quiet and patient about our sins. Church, Genesis chapter 6 reminds us that we must take our sin seriously. We can't be careless about this. We cannot assume that our sin's not, not a big deal. We can whitewash it and make it look and feel better than it really is. We, we must not explain our sins away. No, we are better off when we fully acknowledge our sin, the, the depth and the depravity of our sin, and then respond in faith to God's solution to our sin. Church, that brings us to our third point. Point number three, an ark is built by faith. It is in the midst of this increasing corruption on the earth, and it's in the midst of God shifting the way that he's going to relate to humanity. It's in the midst of all of this that we are introduced to this man named Noah. Look at verse 8. 
immediately, after speaking of how he was sorry for having created humanity, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in his eyes. Now, folks, we might be tempted to, to breathe a sigh of relief here and say, well, that okay, maybe humanity's not that bad after all. Maybe the pandemic of sin didn't affect everyone. And maybe there really are some pretty good people out there like, like Noah. Maybe, in fact, like Noah, we are not as bad as we first thought. Maybe sin isn't quite as severe as we first said. But friends, as we saw earlier, the pandemic of sin does not spare anyone. We are all guilty before God, even Noah, as we will see in the chapters ahead. But then why? Why does Noah find favor in God's eyes? Well, folks, the order of verses 8 and 9 matter very much. In verse 9, which, which speaks of Noah being an upright and blameless man, if, if that verse came first, then we would see it as being the reason for Noah finding favor in God's sight, right? If, if, no, if verse 9 came first, this would be equivalent to salvation by works. If verse 9 came before verse 8, it would be difficult to argue anything different than that Noah earned God's favor by being a pretty good guy, being blameless in his generation. But that's not what we see here, is it? No, Noah finding favor in God's eyes comes first, and it is not because of anything in him. No, we know that he's a sinner like the rest of mankind, and so what we see here is that it is only an act of God's grace by which Noah is accepted. In fact, when it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that, that word for favor can also be translated as grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not because of his righteousness. It's not because he was perfect. It's not because he had earned God's favor through living a pretty good life and cleaning himself up as much as he could. Noah found favor because of grace. It was because God is a God of mercy. It's because though, though in this text God is, is shifting the way that he's going to relate to humanity, listen, he does not shift his ultimate plan for humanity. Because he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And so even as he turns and begins to express his indignation against the sins of humanity, including the sins of Noah and his family, even as he does... He gives grace to a small remnant of people. He gives grace to Noah and his family. He offers a way of salvation. He calls Noah to build an ark by faith, a, a place where Noah can be spared from the wrath of God's judgment. And so in the midst of judgment, God preserves. In the midst of judgment, God protects in the midst of wrath, he gives salvation to a small group of people. He spares them, not because of anything in them, but because of the reality of his grace and mercy in his own heart. He delivers them from the flood of the waters of his wrath, not because they are impressive, but because his grace and mercy is astounding. He could have just wiped away everyone. He could have just 
just killed off the world and gone back to being perfectly happy within, within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't because he is resolved to display his grace and his mercy to an undeserving family, to an undeserving church. Friends, this is the gospel in Genesis chapter 6. Noah and his family deserve wrath, but they are given grace. They deserve judgment, but they are given mercy. Church, you deserve God's wrath, but you in Christ have grace. You deserved eternal judgment, but he has given you rich mercy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now, not because of me, not because of anything I've done, I'm found and now I see. Church, don't forget the order of events. Don't forget the order. You were lost. But even while you were an enemy of God, he sent his son to die in your place. The, the order matters. If you forget that grace comes first, then, then when you fall into sin again tomorrow morning, when you mess up, when you get angry, when you look at that again, when you, when you use that again, when you are selfish again, if you get the order of things wrong, when you fail again like you're going to, you will doubt whether salvation is really possible for you because your sin will seem too great. But if you get the order right, if it's grace that comes first, if it's God's free and unmerited favor that comes first, not a result of your works, not a result of your performance, then you can respond with joy and thankfulness and a life full of worship even when you continue to fall. Do you notice what it says about Noah? It says that he was righteous and blameless. Listen, those two words don't speak of perfection, but they speak of a life that is more characterized by love of God than love of, of sin. Noah responded to God's favor. He responded to his grace, and he lived for God and not himself. Look at verse 22. It says that he did all that God commanded him. That, that should not just pass by us. That is astonishing. That's amazing faith. Can you imagine the faith that was required for Noah to build this boat without having any physical proof for what it was going to be used for? Who of us has faith like that? I'll tell you who. Every one of us who is saved by grace and realizes that in his great love, God does not count our sins against us. Those who know that they deserve wrath as evidenced through our poor decisions every single day. Those who know that they deserve God's wrath but are recipients of God's grace are those who can then live by faith and follow God's call on their life no matter how much faith it requires. Because of all he's, that he's already done for you. And so that co-worker at work who has been singing the praises of the other candidate that you kind of want to punch in the face, there's grace for you because you can love them in the same way that God has loved you despite your sin, despite your need. As we consider who God is and what he's done for us, it, it changes the way that we live. We, we are no longer swimming in our own condemnation and trying to figure out how to, to make ourselves better in other people's eyes. No, we are swimming in the goodness of his grace and we are fully accepted and fully able to live out of that goodness and live powerfully for him like Noah did, no matter the cost, no matter how significant it is. Your family life feels broken. Your, your relationships are strained. You're hardly even 
speaking together within the home, God is able. He has given you grace through Christ Jesus to navigate those waters as well. Whatever it may be, is it an addiction? Is it a substance abuse? Is it, is it, is it codependence with somebody in an unhelpful and un, unhealthy way? Whatever it is, because of who we are in Christ, we are accepted and we have been given everything that we need to cling to him and to live for him in the days ahead. And so church, may we get the order right. May we know that grace comes first and then our worshipful obedience comes second. May we remember who we are apart from God's grace, desperate, and then may we remember how he has spared us from the judgment that we deserved. This can change everything. And as we will see, it is God's way of, of delivering and preserving a remnant, no matter how small, no matter how weak we feel, his grace is sufficient for all things, and he will strengthen us by that grace for our good and for his glory.